Be standing and take out your Bible and turn to John, the first chapter. It's on page 863 in your uh, Red Pew Bible. Actually, 862. If you're visiting, we're uh, finishing up a series of looking at the mission of transformation. We saw God transform the uh, temple and the people's hearts in Ezra. Last week, we saw God transform the community in the book of Acts as they shared together. This is a transformation of one of the closest people to Jesus during his earthly ministry. And in the uh, 35th verse of the first chapter of John, down through verse 41, we find Simon being brought for the first time to Jesus. If you're visiting, when I get done reading, together we will, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and you'll say, thanks be to God. It's a statement that you trusted. So let's read together out loud verses 35 through 42. And as you read, listen with your spirit, you're reading God's word. The next day, John again was standing with two of his disciples. And as he watched Jesus walk by, he exclaimed, Look, here is the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and saw them following, he said to them, What are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, Where are you staying? He said to them, Come and see. They came and saw where he was staying, and they remained with him that day. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated anointed. He brought Simon to Jesus, who looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You are to be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. This is the word of the Lord. Heaven and earth will pass away, but the words you just read never will. Get used to uh, hearing that word for the next seven weeks. We're going through the book of Romans, but we're going through it with a different look this way. Now we're going through it through the scientific eyes. Kinesis is the word that means what happens to an organism when it's struck with light and how it moves and transforms. This monster theological work, the Apostle Paul, as he's in prison and uh, writing uh, to the uh, Romans, and he longs to see them. And we're going to take a look at what happens, first of all, illuminate. How does God show himself? Next Sunday, how does God show himself in creation? And then the next week, what about those that have never heard? Have never heard the name of Jesus? What will he do with those? Next week we talk about permeate. How come I keep doing the bad things I do? My wife wants to know. How come? And how come I can't do the good things that I want to do? Well, Paul talks about that. And then the last two weeks, radiate. God wants to use his church as a prism. All your different flavors, the light of Christ, going and changing society and governing this world. We're uh, interviewing, it's going to be the drama team has some fun stuff, but there'll be also we're interviewing Hugh Ross. Uh, the great Christian astrophysicist, and he's going to be uh, talking about what this means and how we can grow in Christ. So that's going to start next week. So you got one week to memorize the book of Romans, or else uh, just take this Bible out. We also have little cards on the way out if you want to invite some friends to that. Uh, it's a great way to get them into the life of the church. As we said, if you're visiting, we uh, welcome you to this table in communion. And we're doing a last of our little in-house kind of a pep talk about our third year, our last year of our campaign for Bel Air. And that is simply where we want to complete this site and advance the mission. 
uh, complete this side. Isn't it great watching uh, the structure go up over here? And That's where you'll be able to park your car and have it waxed when you worship in here. And uh, No, that would have been a good idea, but that's not what we're going to do. And to do fellowship and for the children to meet over there and to put your oar into the water. Over half of the people who attend here are not part of this campaign, probably because we've had that many new people in the last two and a half years that started attending here. It's a one-year commitment for you until next June to say, this is over and above your regular, but I want to make a special gift to the Lord. Now, your home church, this applies uh, to, to you. And if you don't have a home church, get one. Uh, there's a lot of great churches that are around. There's some real nutcases, but there's a lot of great churches that are out there. And as we try to transform this city, transformation is a powerful word. It's used actually so much it loses its meaning. Creation is where God makes something out of nothing. Transformation is where he takes something already made and takes it up, re-engineers it in a fresh new way to a new design. And what I love about Jesus meeting Simon, that as he talks to him and as Andrew brings his brother to Jesus, and I think only Andrew, out of anyone in the world, would have had the influence to bring this stubborn fisherman to Jesus. And as he brings him there, Jesus looks at him with a smile and says, So... You are Simon, you will be Peter, and there's a long gap in between. It's about fulfillment without finishing. You are Simon, but I'm in the process of making you Peter. And just like all of us in here, someday we'll be given a new name, it says in the book of Revelation, that no one knows but God, your unique identity to Him, and you'll finally make sense, not just to the world, but to yourself. You are Simon, but you will be Peter. And that involves two things, just like Peter in all of our lives. And it's scary. Leaving and loving. When he first calls Simon, he has to leave his career, his family, and follow Jesus. And a disciple means you don't know anything what's going to happen. Disciple doesn't mean I have it all together and I follow. A disciple means a learner. And he says, you leave where you're at and follow me. And then we're going to find at the end of his life, when he really starts to become Peter, Jesus confronts him again in love and says, you love the people you normally wouldn't love. And that's tough stuff. And it's wonderful stuff. And this table speaks to us that by being broken bread and poured out wine to others, and that's a hard process, but there is life on the other side. And following Christ is the greatest way to live. Amen? You know, we're going to have an African-American church here tonight. Let's try that amen again. Uh, amen? <laughs> By the way, you have five amens you have to shoot before you leave the service tonight uh, as they talk together. Well, if you've got your Bible, turn over with me, first of all, to Mark, the first chapter, on page 812 in your pew Bible. And we're going to find out the call to follow Jesus by leaving our plans for Christ Jesus called the disciples more than once. Now, you just read John's account. Andrew is obviously a disciple of John the Baptist, the great preparer. They see Jesus walking, and John says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And two curious disciples go, What? What is Rabbi talking about? And they follow Jesus. Jesus turns. And the first thing Jesus says, the exact same first things recorded of God to a human being, Adam, where are you? When Adam was hiding. Jesus turns and he says to the disciples, what do you want? And that's what he asks all of us. And so Andrew goes and gets Simon and brings him and talks to him. I think at the end of that account, 
He goes back to his job of fishing, and then Jesus will come and get him again. Here in the first chapter, in verses 16 through 20, let's read this together out loud. As Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fish for people. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, who were in their boat mending the nets. Immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Now you see there's two different accounts here. Well, which one's right? And the answer is yes. Now, I believe at times the gospel writers will take the same material and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, arrange it differently for a different purpose. They're not as hung up on the details as we are. But here, I believe that actually it's a recording of two events. I trust this word, this written word of God so much, I have staked my life, my entire soul, my only hope is on this living word, or this written word that leads me to the living word, Jesus Christ. And as we come to the scriptures, we can trust them. Now notice that I think that's why when Jesus says, follow me, often you read that. And you, now there was no doubt a magnetism about the Son of God that when he said, you follow me, that you'd go, wow. But it makes more sense. They've spent time with him and now is the time to follow. And they leave their father Zebedee. I like that, James and John in the boat. Now, God calls us to leave our plans for Christ. Now, it doesn't mean we're going to become itinerant preachers or disciples as they were. Very often that God will, and I like how Jesus contacts them. They're fishermen, so he uses their career. I'll make you a fisher of men. I was driving a truck, and he said, follow me, and you can drive others crazy. And that's what I'm trying to do. Uh, that when you follow the Lord, that he will very often take your plans and change them. Now, your plans are not bad plans. Your dreams are not bad dreams. In fact, they may be the exact ones that God will use, even the same destination. The only difference is that when you release them to Christ, then now it's He's the one who's guiding and leading. And the scariest thing is, can we hear Him calling us? Sometimes He's really loud, sometimes He's not. And you know, it's this whole thing about what this campaign for Bel Air is about. It's, you know, you have a choice. You can respond to it or you may not to it. Now, what if you're not a part of it? Well, our drama department, you know, I proposed this theological question to them. Uh, what would you do about that? If you really were sick of churches talking about money, they said, boy, are we ever. Watch this. If you're like me, your church is excuse me, probably warm, loving, and supportive. Most likely, it's just filled with people who can't wait to come to church on Sunday morning. And then afterward, shake your hand, give you a hug, ask how you're doing. Yeah, but who needs that? If you're like us, then you are sick of the big crowds, bad parking, no seats in church when you roll in 30 minutes after the service starts. Preach it, sister. Well, if these things bother you as much as they bother us, You'll be happy to know. We're starting a brand new campaign, and it's going to put a stop to these problems once and for all. It's called the Anti-Stewardship Campaign. It's so simple, we can't believe no one ever thought of it before. What keeps people coming to church? The preaching, the music, the fellowship. 
the commitment to missions. And what drives that machine? Tithing, of course, your dollars. So, if we all stop giving, they'll have to fire the staff and stop holding services. Why, in no time at all, the church would be ours. And besides the obvious perk of that warm feeling you'll get from not giving, our anti-stewardship campaign comes with a lot of surprising side benefits. No money for Sunday school supplies means no Sunday school. No Sunday school means no loud and obnoxious kids. It's like I've died and gone to heaven. <laughs> and if you're anything like me, you like to have a, a little elbow room. What good is coming to worship when the guy next to you is praising God so loudly you can't even hear yourself think? And if you're worried about the sermon, forget about it. I mean, how many sermons have you suffered through your entire life? Dozens? Hundreds? And honestly, how many of them do you even remember? With our anti-stewardship campaign, you can catch up on all the sermons you missed. They're practically all on tape. And should you get bored, you just turn it off. One sermon can last weeks, months. Hey, the service is over. Not to embarrass you, but there's no hand next to you to hold. <laughs> could it even get any better? Yes, it could. Since no one paid the mortgage, they had to sell the church. But don't worry. They turned it into a Walmart, and that worked out because, well, they sell Bibles there. So now we get to worship the way we like it. Yes, alone with the Lord and our own private spiritual thoughts. Oh, touchdown! Yes! So don't forget, it's the anti-stewardship campaign. Yeah. Keep your money for yourself. Let's put church back where it belongs. At, At home. home. My name is Mark Brewer, and I do not approve of this message. Well, you get the point that God is not so much interested in our money. God has that. But God is cares about our heart, and our heart is wrapped right around it like a gravity beam, as I said. As Jesus comes along and he calls them to follow him, and they have to leave their own plans, and that can be a scary thing. It's called the great exchange. That's what this table's about. It's a negotiating table. Before you take of it, it's real simple. God says, you give me your life. Give me all of your life. And I'll give you all of mine. And you can't come to this table and try to change the terms. He won't do that because he loves us too much. And as Jesus comes along and as he calls them to follow them, notice that when people are called out, very often their name changes. You are Simon. You are becoming Peter. Adama in Genesis. Adama really means kind of earth creature, red colored like Colorado. He is called one thing, and then when he leaves loneliness by God making Eve out of the side, then he becomes Ish and Isha, a whole new name. Now they're complete. When Abraham is called out from his family, his country, everything he knows, and he receives the covenant, then he becomes Abraham, Sarai. When she follows and trusts, becomes Sarah. Jacob, Yaakov, which means the supplanter, the ripoff artist. Always taking advantage of everybody. He wrestles with God, and when God calls him out of self-dependency, that's the key. When he's wrestling with the angel of God, and the angel blows his hip out, it wasn't even a contest, and he goes, I won't let you go until you bless me, because now he's dependent, then he becomes Israel. Of course, when 
Levi, one of the 12 disciples, is taking taxes. And Jesus says, you follow me, Levi. And he changes his name to Matthew, God's gift. And of course, Saul of Tarsus, who loved the law, who loved the Torah with all of his heart. And until he met the resurrected Christ, and when he realized the law was just pointing to Jesus, then he goes from Saul to the Apostle Paul. And all of us, as we come up here and make this exchange of saying, God, you take my plans and dreams, and then, Lord, you give me yours. And very often, as I said, they're the same, but they're same in a different way. And as he calls them, and they call them both, and they leave their boats and that they follow him. That means it takes a first step, and that's true in finances. Many people, this is so sad, don't do anything because they can't do everything. It's all or nothing thinking. Well, if I can't give to the Lord 10%, then I'm not going to give him anything. Well, if I can't quit in this, all these sins and get it together, I might as well just stay in my sin. Well, if I don't take that first step, and that's where money, there's a difference between faith and foolishness. Now, if you make commitments you can't keep, that's not faith, that's craziness. But God wants us to step out and to follow in that way. And that takes trust. Uh, one of the great Pentecostal churches, say, one of the pastors up front was saying, brothers and sisters, if the church did not walk with the fly, the church has got to have faith. And they said, let the church fly. And he said, brothers and sisters, for the church not to walk but to run in the fly, it's going to take prayer. And they said, amen, let the church fly. He said, brothers and sisters, for the church not to run but to fly, it's going to take finances. And the church went, let the church walk. A lot of us get to this place where we say, this far, but I don't know about that God. And he calls us to this place of being able to step out and to follow through and trust. You know, I know that people say that, well, the only thing the church wants is your money all the time. I, mean, I, I will admit, there are some people that all they do is they just harp about money. Well, I want to tell you something. I would never have known about prayer. Even being raised as a preacher's kid. If someone hadn't told me, you should see how prayer changes my life. I would never know about the rush it is to just plant the seeds of the good news of evangelism. Your job isn't to bring anybody to Christ, by the way. I don't know if anybody told you that. That's the Holy Spirit's job. Your job is just to plant the seeds and to love them. And what a thrill. I would never have known that if somebody said, Mark, do you ever share your faith? And I wouldn't know how trustworthy God is if somebody hadn't stood up front financially and said, do you tithe to the Lord? Now, one of the great things that my mom taught me that was being able to honor the Lord in that way. And... It takes this place of stepping out, of being able to say, Lord, that I really can follow you and trust you in this. But you know that the world, for all the talk about Christians and money, they watch your generosity. I just read this last week, an article from a columnist from the UK Guardian. His name uh, is Roy Hattersley. I don't know if you've read it. This boy is an avowed atheist, not an agnostic. He thinks religion is just nuts. He writes a column over there in London. Watching the church, he came over here to watch this Katrina response. Watching the churches respond to Katrina, this is what he wrote. Notable by their absence were the teams of rationalist societies, free thinkers clubs, and atheist associations. The sort of my people who scoff at religion's intellectual absurdity. And he went on to talk about all these churches responding. And he winds up with this, quote, The only possible conclusion is that faith comes with a packet of moral imperatives. That while they do not condition the attitude of all believers, influence enough of them to make Christians 
morally superior to atheists like me, unquote. Now, what was he saying? He's going, where's all of his agnostic, loving humanity people? But watching these nuts, now he didn't fall on his knees and say, I need Jesus. But he did say, watching Christians as they give in love, it touches them. They're watching that. And I pray that actually he becomes a believer. But what is the world watches you and your generosity. Do you know why he's shocked at that? Because he doesn't know what it is to know the joy that the Lord will take care of you. He doesn't know what it's like, the thrill of loving and helping others. And I pray that he tastes that. But you and I know that. And that's what this table is about. It's not about buying your salvation. Like they say, for the Christian, religion is grace. And morality is response. As you know God's grace, how we live our lives ethically and morally and generosity is the response to it. And that's where he calls. So big old Peter, and I love Peter as you watch him for the next three years. As long as we've been almost in this campaign for Bel Air in one more year is how long Jesus' earthly ministry was. Just three years. And Simon Peter will follow him and walk with him. And I so relate to Peter. He only opens his mouth to change feet. Have you noticed that when you read the Gospels? He's always saying the wrong thing, always impulsive out there. But Jesus will love him. He's the one who will follow. Peter's house becomes home base. Remember, it was Peter when they were in Mark, the beginning of the gospel, and Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. And in spite of that, Peter still follows Jesus. Um, and as they go along, and Peter's the one who steps out. When the rich young ruler came up and it says Jesus loved him, and he said to the rich young ruler, and the only time he ever said this, sell everything you've got and follow me, and the guy went away grieved. Peter, in the next sentence, says, hey, Lord, we left our houses. What do you think? <laughs> and Jesus smiled and says, Simon, you're right. And whoever follows me will have more in this world than in the life to come. Peter is the only one who, when they are gathered together in Caesarea, then he says, what is the word on the street about who I am? And Peter jumps to his feet and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, I know you, Peter, and you didn't come up with this on your own. You are Cephas, and upon this rock I will build my church. My father's revealed that faith to you. He is the only one who will pick up a sword that night when Jesus is being arrested and take a swing at the guard's ear, risking his own life. And Jesus will say to Peter's confused bewilderment, put your sword up. I've got 10,000 legions at my command. I will drink this cup. And Peter, stunned, goes down and in Jesus' only hour of need when he said, I need you tonight, I've never asked this. And as Jesus is being arrested and they ask him, aren't you a follower? That he swears and spits on the ground and said, I never knew the man. And he catches Jesus' eye before he goes to the cross. And after the resurrection and he appeared to all, there wasn't, seems to be a one-on-one -on -one with Peter. And so he says, I'm going to go fishing. I'm going to go back to my old life. You notice when you fail or you feel you've let God down, you go back to the familiar and Jesus follows. There is a heresy in the evangelical church. And heresy is just truth out of balance that says, first of all, the truth is if you sin, you separate yourself from the life of God. But the heresy is that Jesus will leave you if you sin too much. Jesus not only does not ever leave us, he hunts us down. 
Turn over to John, the 21st chapter, our last passage, page 884 in your pew Bible, verse 15. Simon was called to leave his plans, and now Jesus is going to call him to love in the way that he loves. This is the longest, most tense breakfast in recorded history. Peter has gone fishing. Jesus said, cast your net on the right side. And they have some. Big old Peter brings. And John records there's 153 fish. Now, St. Peter's fish that they call them now over there, it's like a freshwater carp. They're about two pounds, three pounds each. And this is a big boy that brings the net ashore and they have breakfast. Verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Notice he's not calling him Peter. He said, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. A second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter felt hurt because he said to him the third time, do you love me? He said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you fastened your own belt to go wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will fasten a belt around you and take you where you do not wish to go. He said this to indicate the kind of death by which he would glorify God. And after he said this to him, one more time, follow me. This time, it's not just to follow and leave your career. It's to follow me and love these people the way I have loved. Simon, do you love me? And why the three times? Because you know in the Torah and the teaching of the Midrash, what it means to divorce, you have to say three times, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. And it's the breaking of that relationship forever. And the rehealing, Jesus is rebinding himself, saying, do you love me? And what he's saying is, Peter, I know you love me, but you don't know how much you love me. You're going to die upside down on a cross for me because you love me so much. In the meantime, Peter, you love the people I love. Bel Air, that's what this whole campaign for Bel Air is about. It's for loving the people Jesus loves. He loves the world. Yes, he does. But he says, he didn't say, Peter, do you love me? And Peter said, yes. Then give me a big hug. Come on over. He didn't say, Peter, do you love me? Yeah, well, then sing me a song. Sing me a song. What does he say? He says, you take care of my sheep. You take care of my lambs, those little ones. And that will tell me how much you love me. It's remarkable to try to put together. And you know, I never judge what people give. I make kind of conclusions, but I don't judge. (laughs) Because I don't know. Charles Spurgeon, and I love Spurgeon. He was reformed. He was Baptist in London, but he had a reformed faith. Great preacher. He's also kind of salty. You know, he's the one that smoked cigars and it upset a lot of the conservatives around him. They didn't think, say, didn't you think that's a sin, smoking cigars? He said, no, not as long as it's done in moderation. And they said, what do you think moderation is? And he said, one at a time. <laughs> and, but he was very generous in a lot of things. But his wife and him had a little farm and they sold these eggs. They never gave an egg away no matter how poor you were. And people thought, well, he's just a greedy pastor. He was just kind of tight. He preaches good. On the death of his wife, they found out. The reason he sold those eggs, every dollar that came from that, they supported four elderly widows. And he got all sorts of heat about always selling these eggs that wasn't money enough. Never told a person, 
It was no one's beeswax. He was just giving to the Lord. So be very careful when you judge what people are doing or not doing. But one thing that you can judge, and that's someone's love and how they respond. This table over here, Packer said the essence of sin is when we replace God by ourselves. When we say, God, I don't want you, I don't want me. And the essence of grace is where God replaces our sin with himself on that cross. This last week I was with 150 military families up at Forest Home. A third of them had their husbands over in Iraq and Afghanistan. A third had just come back and a third were getting ready to ship out and talking about keeping the families together. And I was talking with a couple of the chaplains over there, one a particular younger guy. He was a, a young African-American. He enlisted, uh, or he went into the chaplaincy corps, and within the first assignment, bang, he's over to Iraq and taking care of the horror over there. He was having a tough a time, he was a Marine, uh, getting through to this group of Marines that were over there about God's love. And I mean, in the horror of war, it's a tough place, not knowing who your friend or your enemy is. And they didn't necessarily love the Iraqis. They're just over there on a mission, not knowing who's going to blow your friend up or not. But something happened that helped him finally get through to them. Two weeks earlier, they were outside of, I believe it was Fallujah, that they were in a firefight. And this one Iraqi, who was a Muslim, who would have nothing to do with their Christianity when they gathered together for prayer, that someone that was kind of an ornery guy that they didn't necessarily like too much in this battle, as the Americans were surrounded, they were starting to get flanked. This young Iraqi, a Muslim, stepped out deliberately, drew all the fire on himself, give away his position so they could escape. He said, that is what Christ did for you. And in these Marines' heads, it lit up. Christ went to that cross. A holy God. He's not just loving, he's holy. One sin, he's not good, he's perfect. And to be in his presence and share what he has, all of us should be banished. But he said, I love you so much, his boy took the hit you and I deserve." That is grace. And that's where we come. And there's a world out there that doesn't know about that. It's a world that needs to know there's a God who loves and a God who shares. And the only way they know that is when you get to the place where you can trust the Lord with your plans and your money and above all, your heart. This table, as I said, is not a table of any denomination, but it's of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a celebration when Jesus took the Passover meal and poured new meaning into it of what grace is about. And as we get ready to take this, the Apostle Paul said to be very careful. Don't go running to this thing and take it of an unworthy manner. What's that mean? That means just flippedly taking it lightly. If you say, well, I've really sinned and blown it, that's what this is for. How far away do you think you are from God this morning? Whether it is six inches or six light years, his arm still reaches that far. All it takes is coming back. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, I thank you that in your love that you stepped into the gap, the gap that we had failed at with this disease called sin.
And Lord, you will never leave us, no matter how many times we fall. You will never forsake us. You will hunt us down because of your great love. I pray, Lord, as we come before you, that, Lord, you would now bring your people to know you. For the glory of Jesus, we pray. Amen.